programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and area-info.net, providing a social media outlet for personalized press releases, business news, business events, and opinions. Information at area-info.net. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. The $1,000 genome has long been considered a milestone, the price at which sequencing can finally go mainstream. Now you can have your entire genome sequenced for about that price, and the price likely will fall from there. Genetic testing has rapidly improved the diagnosis and treatment of diseases such as Huntington's, cystic fibrosis, breast cancer, and Alzheimer's. And advances in genetic technologies increasingly allow us to explore our personal genetic makeup in great detail understand risk to our health, and provide new opportunities to, provide, uh, to improve our health. On the other hand, our society has a dark history of stigma and discrimination from the misunderstanding and misuse of genetic information. This knowledge brings with it difficult questions. Should I get tested? Do I want to know about my susceptibility to particular disorders? What do I do with the results? What about biobanking, newborn screening, prenatal diagnosis? Will my results be kept private? How will this affect my insurance? Those choosing to get tested must decide how to view and understand themselves and their genetics. We're going to be talking about this important uh, growing subject on the program today. You're welcome to join the conversation. Love to know if perhaps if you have been tested, one of those inexpensive tests which test part of your uh, genome. Would you uh, consider getting your entire uh, genome sequenced? What would you do with the results? The number is 1-800-826-1495, or you can reach us by email to upraxcess at gmail.com. We bring in Dr. Jeffrey Botkin, who is University of Utah Professor of Pediatrics, Adjunct Professor of Human Genetics, Chief of the Division of Medical Ethics and Humanities, and Vice President of Research Integrity. Dr. Botkin, welcome to the program. Good morning. Thank you. Appreciate you taking the time. Dr. Robert Klitzman joins us, a Columbia University professor of psychiatry, director of the Masters of Bioethics program, and author of Am I My Genes? Confronting Fate and Family Secrets in the Age of Genetic Testing. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Klitzman. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. We talked uh, in depth about your book uh, a few months ago. I uh, have to be talking about this again let me start with uh, Dr. Botkin. I wonder if you could uh, take us back to school, give us the uh, brief primer on uh, DNA and those four critical letters that uh, that are inside all of our bodies. Yeah, excellent. Uh, the um, sequence of uh, DNA is the uh, the goal for uh, much research these days. And DNA is a molecule that resides in virtually all of our cells. Uh, it's the molecule that uh, transmits hereditary information from one generation to the next. Uh, we got half of our genome from mom and half of our genome from dad. And in that single cell that resulted uh, at, our, at our embryonic stage, uh, the DNA provided really the map for the development of uh, us as individuals and really is the molecule that is responsible for uh, the life plans or body plans at least for uh, all uh, living organisms on Earth. And so it's an enormously long molecule that has four uh, so-called base pairs in which this information is coded. And so there's some three billion base pairs within our genomes uh, that uh, provide information for uh, lots of different physical traits, certainly, and uh, uh, perhaps to a certain extent, uh, uh, different personality traits and psychological traits as well. So the sequencing is uh, in the attempt, and now successful attempt, to learn uh, every single base pair in the entire genome. Hmm. And of course, uh, uh, each of us is unique, uh, other than uh, twins. And so uh, each of us have uh, some differences in our genome sequence from other individuals, and that's what makes us unique. So the, the new technical ability that's developed really over the last 10 or 15 years or so is to be able to take a DNA molecule from uh, one of our cells and provide that entire uh, sequence of information. Dr. Klitzman, in your book, you have an interesting uh, comparison. Uh, until now, you say, Many of these tests, uh, like 23andMe, uh, have uh, investigated 
at most one out of every 10,000 of those letters. Now, if you sequence the entire genome, that's going to give us a whole lot more information. You, you imagine comparing war and peace in the Bible, reading only one letter per page. That was, that was the Old Test. Yes, exactly right. Uh, and that's why, uh, in a way, we're having this conversation. Is As you mentioned, there are now ways that we can test all three billion of the letters, so to speak, the blueprint that makes each of us for about $1,000. Uh, just as reference, 10 years ago, that probably cost about $1 billion. And the price in the past 10 or so years has gone down from $1 billion to $1 million to 100000 to about 1000 And uh, the analogy, as, as I mentioned in the book, in my, my genes, is <clears throat> uh, before we were able to just look at the first letter of every two or three pages. And if you do that, you wouldn't know if you're reading the Bible, War and Peace, or the newspaper. Uh, uh, whereas now we know all the letters, and that gives us much more information. And one problem, of course, is that we don't quite know what it all means yet. Uh, and so a concern is that uh, we're able to get this information. It soon may be associated with many patients' electronic medical records, so other people could see it. Uh, and there may be, we all, all probably found to have, uh, be found to have mutations that predispose us to certain diseases. Those diseases may or may not ever uh, happen for us, uh, but people may look at that information differently. They may feel, well, you have a higher risk of getting a certain disease, so maybe we shouldn't promote you. Maybe I shouldn't give you life insurance or disability insurance or long-term care insurance. Uh, and uh, schools may want that information. Police may want that information. So there's a lot of questions that we as a society and as individuals increasingly are going to have to confront as a result of these new technologies. Hmm. Dr. Botkin, uh, maybe we could uh, concentrate on the, on, the, on the positive here before we go back to some of the negative implications. Why would I want my entire genome sequenced? What would, uh, what would be the positives there to, to spend the $1,000, or probably the price point is going to come down from there? Well, given the fact that much of this information, or at least a few selected genes, can be powerfully predictive of uh, your future health status, uh, the information can be used in a variety of ways to uh, either prevent uh, or detect uh, diseases uh, early. Now, that's not the majority of genetic tests at this point, uh, but there are a few that are pretty powerfully predictive and allow folks to, uh, to take measures to uh, improve the quality of their health. Um, Part of the central ethical challenge right now is that uh, there really is uh, a distinction or a difference or a gap between our ability to learn this information and our ability to do something uh, definitive about it. But in certain families, for example, that have a high risk of colon cancer, by identifying individuals who are at increased risk for future cancer, then either screening or surgical approaches can be used that will significantly decrease the, uh, the risk for future uh, disease. Hmm. Uh, whether lifestyle changes uh, have dramatic effects, I think, really remains to be uh, uh, determined. But that's how people are using this information in ways that uh, uh, we expect to be able to improve their future health. Dr. Bakken, you mentioned that, that I guess for a lot of this information, there is a gap between, say, a probability for developing a certain disorder and anything you can do about it. That's correct, and that's certainly not uniformly so, and uh, everyone hopes that over the span of the next 10, 20, 30 years, that's going to be less and less of a uh, problem. But right now, uh, there are a few examples where you can make some definitive uh, choices. And so I mentioned colon cancer. Another that's been in the news recently with Angelina Jolie is the BRCA1 and BRCA2 mutations. And women who carry a mutation in that gene have up to about an 80% lifetime risk of either breast or ovarian cancer. Now, it'd be wonderful if you had a elegant drug that would target the um, misfunctioning gene in that situation, but we don't have that. And so what women can do is uh, begin early screenings with uh, MRI screening of the breasts uh, seems to be the most accurate. Or, uh, as uh, Angelina Jolie decided, to actually have uh, uh, prophylactic mastectomy, removal of the, the breasts. And that's been shown to have about a 90% reduction in uh, risk of breast cancer. And similarly, you can surgically remove the ovaries and fallopian tubes, and that also appears to have about a, 
uh, 90% reduction in risk. So these are pretty drastic measures, um, very difficult choices for folks. But on the other hand, they do appear to be um, highly effective in reducing the risk of uh, uh, devastating disease like cancer. Dr. Klitzman, uh, I'm, I'm guessing you have encountered people who don't want to know. Yes, that's correct, uh, be- partly because uh, they may misunderstand what it means, or uh, there are, uh, uh, on the one hand, uh, very treatable diseases, very, very easily be easily treatable diseases for which there are definitive tests, but there are also gray areas. So, uh, and I didn't mean to be totally negative, by the way, in what I said earlier about uh, some of, uh, of the uh, downsides, because clearly, as Dr. Botkin mentioned, there are a lot of great positives about having this information. But for instance, there are genes that have been uh, that are associated with Alzheimer's disease. Uh, so you're, uh, with these genes, your risk of Alzheimer's may go to, we can tell you, maybe have a 50 or 60% or 40% risk of Alzheimer's, depending on your family history and your age. Now, some people may say, that's great. I can make appropriate plans. Uh, I could uh, get everything in order. I can make sure I'm living every, my life to the fullest today. Other people say, no way do I want that information because it's not treatable. There's nothing I can do about it, so I just don't want to worry about it. Uh, and each of those decisions are fair decisions. Similarly with breast cancer, I've found people who say, well, you know, I wouldn't want to have my breasts removed, my ovaries removed, so I just don't want to know about it. I'll just follow along and get screening done as I would normally. Uh, And uh, uh, some people may say, well, you know, I have one aunt who died of breast cancer, but she was a heavy smoker and overweight, and maybe that's why she had it. Uh, So people may uh, feel they don't want genetic testing because it's just going to worry them. Now, of course, the the key issue is that there's a list of uh, about 23, 24 diseases for which we have very good tests that are predictive and there's treatments that we have. But for most people, for most diseases, uh, we don't have very predictive uh, tests. Uh, and so it, it, uh, for most people, the information we can give them today won't be very actionable in terms of helping their health. Now, it could inspire one to live more healthily, which is good. Uh, but a lot of people, therefore, say, you know, I, it's going to worry me more than anything. I'm, I'm healthy. I enjoy my life now. Uh, no one in my family has one of these kind of rare diseases that have definitive tests like colon cancer, so I don't want to know. And uh, 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 many people think that. Uh, one issue is that uh, it coming down the line is that uh, insurers may want to, uh, people to get tested and uh, definitely for uh, people with cancer where we're trying to find what treatment's best for them, often doing these kinds of whole genome tests can help in figuring out which treatment is best for you versus for me uh, versus for your next-door neighbor. But uh, when we do those tests, we can now get all this other information about these other diseases, be it Alzheimer's or breast cancer, et cetera, and, and that leads to a lot of difficult decisions of whether people actually now want this information since we'll be looking at their three billion letters. We can uh, easily look and see, do they have particular mutations there? Since we're now, if they have cancer, for instance, being tested for cancer treatment, we can also look if they have other diseases, other genes there as well. There's a lot of difficult issues that we need to get people uh, to get people to begin to think about so they can make informed choices as patients, as doctors, etc. And we're going to be uh, pursuing uh, some of those themes, of course, throughout this hour. Uh, we're going to take a brief break and be back with uh, Dr. Jeffrey Botkin from University of Utah and Dr. Robert Klitzman from Columbia University. We're talking about genetic testing, specifically uh, this critical price point. A lot of people have assumed that once we reach about $1,000 to have your entire genome sequenced, that that's the point at which a lot of people will uh, take advantage of this. And we're here. Uh, there's a test, at least one test out uh, about that price point. Do you want your entire genome sequenced? Would you have genetic testing? What would you do with that information? Uh, And uh, do you want to know about your susceptibility to particular disorder? Or would you prefer not to know? Have you had genetic testing? And how did that go? What did you do with information? You're welcome to join the conversation at 1-800-826-1495. Or upraccess at gmail.com is the email. More following the break. 
Waste not. Help keep your drinking water safe. Eliminate or protect cross connections between your water system and a contamination. And have your backflow preventers tested annually. Waste Not is made possible by the Logan City Public Works Water Conservation Department. Information at loganutah.org slash publicworks. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Cache Valley ENT and the Allergy Clinic, practicing ear, nose, and throat medicine, allergy services, and facial, plastic, and reconstructive surgery, and offering hearing aid services with audiologist Dr. Spencer Tejan, 753-7880, and by USU's Emma Eccles-Jones College of Education and Human Services, ranked in the top 2% of graduate schools of education with degrees in elementary, secondary, and special education. More at cehs.usu.edu. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. Genetic testing is our subject today. Uh, Science is moving rapidly. Are we catching up? Are we uh, being left behind? Uh, we have the ability now for about $1,000 to, to get to our entire genome sequenced, the, the entire genetic makeup, uh, the, the entire picture. Until now, direct-to-consumer uh, tests uh, such as 23andMe's uh, $99 test have only taken a few of those base pairs and uh, extrapolate information from that. Now you can get your entire genome sequenced. You remember back in the day the first, uh, first person sequenced, that was a huge deal. Now you and I can uh, can get that done. What does that mean, though? And uh, we're talking about that and asking you, would you uh, participate in genetic testing? If so, why or why not? What would you do with the information? Or have you had genetic testing and how did that turn out? The number is 1-800-826-1495. Or you can join us at upraxis at gmail.com. Our guests include Dr. Robert Klitzman from Columbia University and Dr. Jeffrey Botkin from University of, uh, of Utah. Uh, Dr. Botkin, I wonder if you talk a little bit about uh, some of these direct-to-consumer tests that, that have been out for a while specifically with regard to the FB, FDA's regulation. I think they, they've now uh, put some restrictions on the most famous company, 23andMe. Uh, why is that? Uh, the FDA has been concerned for a while about the accuracy of those tests. And the basic problem in this whole arena is that we still have a limited understanding of the association between certain genetic changes and uh, health outcomes. So a number of companies, including 23andMe, had put together panels of tests that were based on the literature um, in terms of studies that had found an association between a certain gene change and uh, a certain health outcome. But I don't think anybody felt too comfortable excuse me, that there had been adequate knowledge about um, how tight that association was. So the companies were selling these uh, tests or have been selling these tests for uh, a number of years, and they will provide information about health risks for a variety of conditions, but also some uh, other information about certain traits, uh, uh, earwax, and uh, those sorts of uh, things that are a little bit more uh, uh, entertaining. So I think they, the company, 23andMe, specifically had been in discussions with FDA for quite a while to try to figure out the right way to uh, market these tests. And those discussions were um, at an impasse late last year, and the FDA uh, decided that it was not appropriate until better quality testing was available to uh, uh, allow this sort of marketing to the general public. So it's really a matter of uh, demonstrating safety and efficacy, which is the, uh, the FDA's responsibility. Dr. Klitzman, you you wrote recently in the Huffington Post um, a, a, a post, a blog post, uh, including this phrase: "Genetic testing technology, rather, is fast outpacing our grasp of it." What are your main concerns there? Well, I think as, as uh, Dr. Botkin suggested as well, I think we, uh, and as I mentioned earlier, we have a, uh, so the tsunami of genetic information that's going to be hitting us, where we could now. Uh, look at the three billion letters that make each of us, and we can see that you may have a 
double risk of double the average risk of a particular disease, and that may mean your risk goes from 10% to 20% or 20% to 40%. And we really don't know what that means. Uh, in life insurance companies, disability insurance companies, long-term care insurance companies are wondering, well, should they take that into account and say, well, we're not going to insure people if they have certain risks? Uh, and of course, uh, uh, Ten years ago, a lot of people thought that there would be uh, one gene for every disease, and you still see headlines that they've discovered the fat gene or the depression gene or the, the cancer gene, the alcohol gene. And we now know that for most common diseases, there are probably many, many different genes, plus various uh, uh, environmental factors, what you eat, what you smoke, uh, you know, uh, contaminants in the atmosphere that uh, that pollutants that may be affecting one's risk of disease as well. So uh, we're not going to know how to process all this information that we may be getting. And uh, whereas for other kinds of medical information, we've had years to figure out what an elevated sodium or potassium in your blood, or elevated or increased, decreased or de- uh, increased or decreased iron in your blood mean. Here, it's the technology, the fact that we can spew out all these uh, genetic results for $1,000 to your genome. We're going to get all this information, uh, but we don't know uh, what to do with it. Uh, as, as we mentioned, for a few rare diseases, there are very good treatments. Uh, but uh, for most diseases, we're going to get very mixed pictures uh, of uh, likelihoods of things happening, and, and some people may want that. Uh, and there are various questions. What if it's a very predictive test, but there is no treatment? Uh, what if uh, it has reproductive implications? What if I find out that I can uh, I have a triple risk of having a child with autism? Uh, what if I test uh, my fetus if I'm pregnant, and I find that my fetus has a double the risk chance of autism, or my fetus has a risk of having breast cancer, uh, or we can now also screen embryos in, in vitro fertilization before the embryos are implanted into a woman's belly, uh, into a womb, we can see that uh, those embryos, some embryos have the mutations that are associated with Huntington's disease or breast cancer, uh, and some people say, I don't want those embryos put in, I want these instead. And we need, as a society, need to figure out, should we let people do whatever they want? Should we, and uh, given the fact that it's also expensive to have the screening of embryos done, for instance, uh, do we like the idea that wealthy people will be able to screen out certain diseases in the future that poor people who can't afford the technology may get? I think uh, uh, we may say, well, that's all science fiction, but people are beginning to do these kinds of procedures. And I think that we as a society need to decide, do we want government regulation? Do we not want government regulation? If we do want some, what should it look like? Should we let doctors and just regulate themselves in this stuff? Uh, uh, so again, there's a whole host of questions here that I think we need to begin to educate ourselves about and think about. So we as individuals, as society, as patients, as family members of patients can make the best decisions. Uh, and one issue, of course, is that if I get tested and find out that I have a gene for a bad disease, whether treatable or not, that uh, usually is going to say something about my siblings, maybe children, if I have children, my parents. So genetic information is not just about one person, but can usually often says something about other people as well. Uh, and again, uh, as I mentioned with insurance companies, insurance companies, uh, we, we, there's the Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act, which covers health insurance. So for health insurance, uh, uh, um, insurers are not allowed to discriminate, but for life insurance and disability insurance and long-term care insurance, those companies can say, well, if you want our kinds of insurance, you have to have genetic testing done, or they can say, has, have you had genetic testing done, or has anyone in your family had it done? If so, what's the results? And then we'll decide whether we should insure you on the basis of that or not. And I think, again, there's a question, uh, do we want that? Should the government say, no, you can't do this? Uh, so, again, I think these are questions that we as a society increasingly are going to have to think about. Hmm. Dr. Botkin, uh, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about uh, uh, prenatal testing, uh, testing of, uh, of infants, especially with – there are some institutions, I think, health institutions, which routinely take DNA samples of 
everybody who walks in the door that who knows that might grow in the future and especially for a, a newborn or person who hasn't been born yet they don't have any control over that information that, that might go with them the rest of their lives yeah and these sorts of genetic tests we're talking about can be uh, done at essentially any stage of development you can do a genetic test on a uh, embryo that's at a, a eight cell stage for example just the microscopic ball of cells uh, all the way through to uh, advanced age uh, and in fact they're doing uh, dna sequencing on uh, neanderthal bones these days so you can have yourself sequenced uh, 50,000 years after your death but one of the uh, fascinating areas that's created uh, quite a few ethical concerns uh, is in the prenatal arena. And prenatal testing for um, problems with the, the fetus has been around for a while, uh, both in terms of um, tests like amniocentesis, which involves removing fluid from the amniotic sac, or chorionic villus sampling that involves going in with uh, um, a tool to take a piece of the uh, placenta. and. These have been around for 30, 40 uh, years now <clears throat> and have been widely discussed from an ethical perspective, but part of the new technology is so powerful that it enables the ability to do a simple blood test on the mother early in pregnancy. And there's enough of the fetus's DNA that's circulating within her bloodstream that you can just do a blood test on her, pull out the fetal DNA, uh, you also have to have dad along there, uh, too, but you can figure out by about eight to ten weeks of pregnancy uh, the entire sequence of the uh, fetus. Now, again, the, <clears throat> the same challenges uh, pertain here, too, which is the fact that we don't really understand a lot of the information we're, we're getting. Um, but it's that much more challenging in this domain because we're worried that folks might make a decision, say, to terminate a pregnancy based on partial or incomplete or inaccurate information that's uh, uh, yet to be fully clarified in this particular domain. So this is a, an approach, the, the full fetal genome sequencing that's just beginning to emerge now, and it remains to be seen uh, how often that's going to be used, how, whether folks are interested in that information, and uh, uh, how that technology is going to play out. If you just joined us, we're talking about genetic testing. Uh, we've reached an interesting point to the $1,000 uh, genome, uh, which means that for about $1,000, I can get my entire genome sequenced. All, what is it, 3 billion base pairs or whatever it is. Uh, until now, you could only um, sequence a part of, uh, part of your genome. So that's a huge deal. Uh, made headlines, of course, back when we were able to do the, this for the first time. Now you and I can, can do that for that price point, uh, and uh, that price will probably drop. So what will be happening? Uh, some institutions, as I mentioned, uh, take your DNA as you walk in the door, and uh, then they, they bank that. They have that. And so that information is, is out there. Uh, uh, and uh, some people uh, purposely seek this out, of course, to find out if they have susceptibility to certain disorders or for other reasons. Other people don't want to know. And there are privacy is issues, of course, discrimination issues. We're talking about that on the program today. You are welcome to join us at 1-800-826-1495, or you can join us by email to upraxis at gmail.com. We have with us Dr. Jeffrey Botkin from University of Utah and Dr. Robert Klitzman from Columbia University. Dr. Klitzman is author of an interesting book, Am I My Genes? Confronting Fate and Family Secrets in the Age of Genetic Testing. Uh, Dr. Klitzman, I want to uh, turn to a, a passage from, from the book. Uh, you, and of course, uh, throughout the book, you talk uh, about uh, several uh, patients that, uh, that have, were wrestling with this, and these are sort of uh, pioneers in uh, wrestling with these dilemmas about genetic uh, testing. Um, and in fact, this is how your book begins. Uh, a woman in her late 30s, she had breast cancer, just learned she had the mutation associated with the disease. She looks out the uh, at your office and uh, and says, am I my genes? That's a very interesting uh, question that I, I'm sure a lot of people have to confront. Yes, it is, because uh, as we were talking about, our genes obviously are the blueprint that make us. Uh, 
And there have been, for centuries, debates about nature versus nurture, uh, and it seems that for many traits, of course, intelligence and a lot of other things, a lot of diseases, uh, people's uh, symptoms and behaviors are a mix of of nature and nurture, but to a certain degree, of course, our genes do make us. Uh, They're not the entirety of us, but they form certain uh, boundaries uh, or... uh, Uh, set a certain skeleton on which the rest of us will develop. Um, And that can be good or bad, uh, because we, as human beings, want to understand the world, want to understand ourselves. Uh, As I talk about in the book, uh, one woman I interviewed said to me, you know, I I always knew I shouldn't have stayed in that awful relationship all those years. I said, why is that? She said, well, that's why I have breast cancer. I said, yeah, but you have the mutation for it. She said, yeah, 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 but what triggered it was the stress of that awful relationship. Uh, And I always knew I shouldn't have stayed in that relationship. And in her mind, uh, that was the stress uh, that uh, sort of, you know, broke the camel's back, so to speak. So people look for trying to make uh, stories, try to find coherence in their lives, things that happen to them don't happen to them. And uh, genetics obviously can be a forceful explanation. And, and as we talked about, for some diseases, genetics is the cause. If you have certain mutations, like for Huntington's disease, you will die of that disease if you don't die of something else first. Uh, it is lethal. So there are lethal mutations. But uh, again, there are some mutations that uh, are just increase your predisposition for a disease. So genetics constitute us, uh, and we have a lot of mythologies out there. There are uh, on the one hand, there, there's a great desire to know one's future, and uh, every culture has crystal balls and soothsayers, and uh, there are palm readers, and people read their horoscopes and say, well, you know, I'm a you know, Sagittarius, so it's, I'm going to fall in love. So similarly for a lot of people, uh, there is a popular myth out there that genetics can tell us something about our future, which sometimes, but not always, it can. Uh, and... Uh, uh, so we feel that our genetics are part of us, uh, and uh, you know we came. There's no question we came from that one cell that had the instructions. And we look, and we uh, people commonly say, you know, I look like my father, or I look like my mother, or I take after my mother, or she's like her father, or she's like her mother, etc. So they determine us, uh, and it's a question how much they determine us. Uh, some people I interviewed who felt things hadn't gone well in their lives; they were depressed or had been abused would say things like, you know, I always felt I was a mutant. I always felt there was something wrong with me. Uh, And uh, uh, questions of fate uh, go deep in our culture. And I think that the genetic testing raises questions not just for us as doctors and patients, but for us as human beings, uh, what we make of this. Uh, This has other implications as well, because there are genes that are being identified that are associated with impulsivity, for instance, that we know that certain genes increase your risky risk of being impulsive. Uh, maybe there will be genes that are more definitively found that are associated with uh, violence. And the question then is, too, uh, when juries hear, well, here's someone who's accused of a crime and they have this gene associated with impulsivity, uh, we at Columbia have done some research that a lot of jurors would say, well, let's lock them up longer. Uh, so uh, how we look at people with uh, various diseases uh, affects how we look at them uh, as people often, or can do so. And again, I think these are very difficult issues uh, of how much we are our genes, how much we are nature versus nurture, what that means, uh, uh, et cetera. And, and another area where it comes up, for instance, if we find genes associated with autism and people are busy looking for them, uh, if teachers find out, well, Johnny over here has that gene associated with autism, even if it may say double his chance, give him say a even a ten percent chance of autism, will the teacher spend less time with Johnny? Will Johnny's parents not read to him as much? Uh, again, how we look at these issues uh, uh, is going to shape a lot of uh, not just medical information, but potentially other aspects of our lives that affect how we look at ourselves and each other. I want to follow up briefly with the, your your conversation with this woman who uh, who had lived on on Long Island. She's she's been in a bad relationship. I think she also mentioned high tension wires. She's looking for yes, right. for the for the nurture kind of the side of nature and nurture. Uh, and of course, you told her, well, you have the mutation, so that's the that's the side on the genetic side. But how how do you help someone like her to navigate 
the the nature and nurture, you know, and and thinking about how those two play together. Yeah, that's a great question. I think it's important to uh, tell people that there's different ways of looking at statistical information. One is to say, well, this doubles your chances of something, and the other is to give it a percent, sort of a, what we call sort of relative versus absolute risk. So sometimes if you say, you know, 5% of people do X or whatever, people don't know what that means, but sometimes you even show people a drawing of a hundred little stick figures and they're all black and one's white or they're all blue and one's yellow and it helps people to visualize, I think, uh, that kind of information. One thing I found, as I describe in the book, in my, my genes, uh, is that there's a lot of misunderstandings of genetics. So, uh, it's and it's also hard to uh, know that some of this is due to randomness and chance, but I think trying to clarify with a woman and say, uh, and it's hard to understand, you know, well, this increases your risk, but doesn't mean it's going to happen. It's sort of like predicting the weather. So often uh, the, the weatherman will say, well, there's a, you know, uh, 50% chance of rain uh, or 30% chance of rain. So we sort of understand that, you know, that doesn't mean it's going to rain, but it may, and you may decide to take your umbrella with you to work or not. Uh, so uh, there's uh, an increased risk. Uh, it doesn't mean it's going to happen, but people in their own lives like to look for reasons for things that, you know, what's the answer? What's the cause? Is it going to happen or not? So we have to accept often that there's going to be some uncertainty. And that's not always easy to accept. People want to know, you know, am I going to get it? How long do I have to live? What do I have to do? Uh, and unfortunately, genetics is showing the way in which chance and probabilities play a role in life. And uh, it's not so simple to give answers, even though we want and expect answers from science. And I think so part is educating people that uh, genetics can give a lot of very useful practical information, but it's going to also give a lot of uncertain gray information. And to be able to accept that is not easy, but I think we all have to try. We're talking about genetic testing with uh, Dr. Robert Klitzman from Columbia University. You heard from him right there. And we're also talking with Dr. Jeffrey Botkin from University of Utah. They're medical ethicists. And uh, it's very interesting. We've reached a price point, $1,000, which many people assume that uh, kind of a critical mass, many of us at that price will be getting our entire genome sequenced. So should we? And do you want to? What do you do with that information? Uh, more and more of us will have to be grappling with these issues. We're going to take a brief break. When I come back, uh, interested in uh, hearing uh, from Dr. Botkin, uh, conversations perhaps he has had with, with uh, patients. More following the break. On NPR News, it's all about the story. People can surprise you anytime. The people behind movies, books, and music. Music is like a Rorschach test, you know, and people hear what they want to hear. I'm Arun Roth, the new host of All Things Considered from NPR News, now coming to you every weekend from NPR West in Southern California. Weekend afternoons at 4 on Utah Public Radio. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Science Unwrapped in USU's College of Science, presenting How We Know What We Know About Dinosaurs with paleontologist Mary Schweitzer, professor at North Carolina State University, Friday at 7 in the Eccles Science Learning Center. Information at usu.edu slash unwrapped. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Genetic testing has rapidly improved the diagnosis and treatment of diseases, uh, but uh, there is a dark side. Our society has a dark history of stigma and discrimination from the misunderstanding and misuse of genetic information. And uh, we're talking about genetic testing on the program today with uh, Dr. Robert Klitzman from Columbia University and Dr. Jeffrey Botkin from University of Utah. You're welcome to join the conversation if you would like at 1-800-826-1495 or you can join us by email to upraxcess at gmail.com. Before the break, uh, Dr. Klitzman was talking about some conversations that he has had with uh, various patients. Uh, Dr. Botkin, I wonder what conversations you have participated in or, or uh, are, are aware of, some of, some of the dilemmas that the patients are facing with genetic testing. You know, we had been involved uh, several years ago now in some of the early studies of how people respond, 
excuse me, to genetic information, and specifically a large kindred here in uh, Utah that had uh, has some 700 individuals who are at risk for carrying the BRCA1 mutation. So our work had uh, offered testing to individuals in the family, both men and women, and uh, tracked their response to that information. So I think that's uh, been a quite an educational experience to see how people uh, think about these issues in the context of their families. And of course, people have had such powerful experiences frequently with a mother or a sister or an aunt who's had the disease. And that's clearly a significant influence on how people think about testing. What we found, and I think it's pretty consistent with the other literature uh, in the world about these issues, is about half of the people who were at risk for having a BRCA1 mutation decided to, to be tested. Um, many more than folks, say, who are at risk of Huntington's, and Dr. Klitzman talked a little bit about the devastating neurologic disease, that the test is highly predictive and there's nothing you can do about it. And it's interesting that the vast majority of people who are at risk for Huntington's decide not to be tested about this. They don't want this information. And so uh, in the BRCA1 context, about half of people do. So that's many more, but yet uh, there's still lots of folks who don't want this information. Uh, we did find that people who were tested ended up using the information in appropriate ways to uh, pursue early, uh, to pursue screening and early diagnosis and that sort of thing. And that the psychological burden didn't turn out to be uh, um, too serious for at least the vast majority of folks. They had a, a short-term period of several months where there was uh, increase in anxiety, but then longer term, uh, people adapted uh, to the information and uh, uh, organized their lives to, to be able to use that information in a, uh, what seemed to be a helpful way for them. Dr. Bakken, uh, I want to just follow up with, with genetic testing and families. Uh, it's my understanding that DNA is increasingly being used in, in genealogy. And so that prompted this question, uh, in my mind anyway. Uh, so to a certain extent, if I, especially if I get my entire genome sequenced, I'm going to come to know myself a little better, at least on that side of, of my genes. To what extent do I also know my family? Well, you know a fair amount. Um, you know, for example, that if uh, you carry a particular type of mutation, let's say for colon cancer, then you... Uh, pretty assuredly got that from one or the other of your parents. And it's interesting in this context, we've just talked a little bit about how lots of people don't want to know this information. So there's a interesting dilemma in and of itself. Imagine that you as, say, a 25-year-old are very interested in this information, but yet uh, your parents are not. And by virtue of getting testing, uh, you are uh, providing a tacit result to a, a parent uh, in that regard. Now, you also know that your kids are going to be at risk for this. And one of the principles that's emerged over the years is that kids ought to have the opportunity to make choices on their own when they become adults. So that particularly if you have an adult onset condition, like we've been talking about, say, with BRCA1, where the disease itself doesn't strike until uh, the adult years, is it appropriate to test kids? Well, there's a fair number of parents who are interested in testing their kids. Not the majority, but uh, a substantial minority of parents would be interested in that information about their kids. But the, really the standard that's been around for a good 10 or 15 years is to say, you know, we should be reluctant to do that. Let's let these kids uh, grow up um, and make a decision uh, on their own once they become uh, uh, old enough to, to grapple with these issues. Hmm. Dr. Klitzman, uh, reading again from this uh, blog from your, your blog entry from the Hunts, Honey, Huffington Post, excuse me, um, you say this past spring the American College of Medical Genetics announced that all labs testing whole genomes should give their results concerning some 23 treatable diseases uh, to the patient's doctors, you say presumably to be returned to the patient regardless of patients' ages, desires for the test. So I wonder where you think that balance should be. What, uh, what should rules be concerning where the information goes and what is done with it? Right. Uh, the, uh, these are very important questions. I think uh, there are a group, as we talked earlier, of uh, about 56, 57 mutations associated with 23 or so diseases where there is uh, a very predictive test and there's something you can do about it. 
Uh, and I think that adults should be encouraged to get those tests done, to look at those results when they undergo uh, whole genome sequencing. Uh, I think with kids, it's a little different. So uh, as we were just talking, uh, uh, what the American College of Medical Genetics thought is that that information should be given to everyone, even if it's an infant. The infant should be told that, the parent should be told that that infant um, has the mutation for breast cancer. Uh, I think it's better to talk to the family and find out what the family wants. Uh, do they want the information uh, uh, and uh, what's appropriate? Uh, and there may be people who say, you know, I'm 98 years old and I have cancer and I'm just dealing with that. And I don't want to be told that I have other things that I need to worry about right now, especially if they may not in fact happen. So I think we don't want to miss giving people information that they could use to help their health. I think we should encourage patients. But uh, I think, uh, in general, I think any sort of one-size-fits-all policy where we're going to, you know, mandatorily give people information no matter what uh, is a little bit problematic. I think it's better to uh, have doctors talk to patients about what they want and also find out what patients want. Do patients want the information? Are they going to be freaked out about it? Uh, what kind of counseling should they get as part of it? Uh, I think these are all uh, important questions that we need to do before we start making policy automatically. Uh, I think that uh, the American College of Medical Genetics, which actually about a week or two ago backed down a bit on what it had said, but when it came out less than a year ago with that policy, I think a lot of us thought it was a little premature to start saying, coming up with hard and fast policy about what doctors uh ought to be given, et cetera, that we need to have more individual choice involved if we can. Just have a couple minutes left. Uh, I wonder, uh, Dr. Botkin, if a person wants to get genetic testing, what are some things you would advise them? That it, one of these direct-to-consumer uh, tests, go out and get the $1,000 entire genome sequencing test, what, uh, what to look for? Should you see your doctor first? I think that's always a good idea. Uh, I'm not a advocate of the um, direct-to-consumer testing, in part because um, the tests aren't very good to begin with, and you're not really embedded within a, a healthcare system that you can help uh, you can have somebody uh, interpret the information for you. And there are a lot of doctors now who are getting challenged by patients who are coming in with these reports and then saying, well, what do I do now? And that's a big challenge for uh, clinicians. So I do think testing within the, uh, a medical relationship is a good idea. So part of the question is, what, what are you looking for? And if you've got a particular family history of a disease, then uh, there may be good options to think about uh, testing. If you're interested in just getting your whole genome scanned for uh, interest value, then I would uh, say so you ought to think about that pretty carefully because uh, there's lots of uncertain information that will emerge. There will be lots of secondary findings that uh, may emerge there that uh, is hard to predict uh, beforehand. So it would be important to do that in a context where you can think through uh, what the pros and cons are of testing and then to have somebody sit with you to interpret the results uh, at the end and support you in making decisions that will best use that information to improve your health. Dr. Klitzman, just 30 seconds left. Give you the last word. I think it's uh, the more education we have about it, the better. I know we, as you mentioned, I direct the Masters of Bioethics program at Columbia. We have online courses that people from all over the country can take if people are interested in learning more about these topics. Uh, and I think that uh, conversations like this are important. And uh, I think the more we know, the better we'll be able to make decisions about what to do with this information. And it also should be a very exciting time in upcoming years as we can perhaps uh, help have genetics guide our treatments and our diagnoses. Uh, at the same time, it's, it's not all a wonderful picture. We need to be careful how we use it, as with any technology. But uh, I, we, we look forward to an exciting future and having more conversations like this. Yeah, very interesting. Uh, we've been talking about genetic testing with uh, two experts in the field, uh, Dr. Robert Klitzman from Columbia University. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you. And Dr. Joff Jeffrey Botkin from University of Utah. Thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure. And uh, we hope you'll join us tomorrow. We are privileged to be joined by Paul Rusesa-Bagina. 
He is the man who inspired the film Hotel Rwanda. Uh, as Rwanda descended into chaos during the 1994 genocide, Paul Rusesabagina saved many people in his hotel. We'll be talking with him on the program tomorrow. For uh, producers Katie Swain and uh, Bennett Purser, I'm Tom Williams. Thanks for listening today. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan, open Monday through Saturday until 3, and now offering a ham and cheese demi-baguette sandwich. Menu details at crumbbrothers.com. Utah writer Gina Wickwar. Every once in a while, something happens that truly restores your faith in humankind. Just when I was despairing over the dozens of news articles telling us that our children are getting dumber because all they do is play games on their smartphones, I discovered that all is not lost. There are kids who want to learn and parents who want to teach them. We were on the plane coming home from a week visiting friends in San Francisco. In the row behind us, a young boy, about 10, was sitting next to his father. They were heading home for New Jersey after they changed planes in Salt Lake. As our plane gathered speed down the runway, the father asked his son to watch the wing flaps and described how they worked to help lift the plane. When we were airborne, he began pointing out the various landmarks rolling beneath us, San Francisco Bay, the glorious span of the Bay Ridge, and further on, the San Pablo River, the Carquina Straits, Suisan Bay. Soon we were banking to the northeast, and the dad called attention to Sacramento, head in the distance. As we approached Tahoe, he continued his geography lesson, pointing out the lake, Donner Pass, and the backside of the Sierras that descended abruptly into the desert floors of Nevada. It was here that the father took up a story about the new gold rush taking place in Nevada, and then he segued into a narrative about Yucca Mountain, nuclear energy, the politics of nuclear waste, and so on. I was listening rapidly to all this, fascinated, and so was my husband. This man behind us seemed particularly well-educated, for he said something trenchant about every topic he discussed. Even more significant, he managed to explain his observations to his young son in a thoughtful and totally non-condescending manner. He didn't lecture, rather he allowed the boy to interrupt often to ask questions. A special Socratic dialogue was taking place right behind our backs, and it was wonderful to be the proverbial fly on the wall overhearing it. As we approached the Great Salt Lake, he learned about ancient Lake Bonneville, how the Great Salt Lake was all that remained of it after the Great Bonneville Flood through Red Rock drained most of the lake about 17,000 years ago. He learned why the lake is salty like the Dead Sea, how easy it is to float in, and a myriad of other pertinent facts. Our plane turned southward for a spell before turning to the north for landing. As usual, we encountered some turbulence as we passed northward over Provo and Orem. Amazingly, the father was able to tell his son how the downdrafts from the mountainous terrain and the hot air upwelling from the ground collided to cause our bumpy ride. He pointed out Salt Lake City, especially the Capitol building and the temple, and told his son a few salient facts of the LDS religion during our approach, keeping up a steady patter of details about our state as we landed and taxied to the gate. Had I not known he was from the East Coast, I would have sworn he was a native Utah. So accurately did he dispense information to his son. We got out of our seats, and I flashed a quick look at this exceptional pair. They were still talking earnestly about Utah. What was so fascinating about the whole episode and what gave me renewed faith in our kids' futures was that on this whole trip, not once did the young boy ask for his computer, and now, even as we were stopped at the gate, neither he nor his dad reached into their pockets for the dreaded iPhones that are whipped out as soon as a plane bumps the gate. No, these two fellows, father and son, knew the pleasure of learning and conversation. It was heartwarming to see it, let me tell you. This is Gina Wickwar. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan.